The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. This will be our last lesson on ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. And this morning we're going to look at what's called what we've titled the ministry of the church. We've largely followed this book by Robert Sosi. It's very good. Uh, and just to review a little bit about what we've covered already. Remember, we started out defining the Greek term ekklesia. We saw that it's at heart an assembly. Uh, it, and very early on had the idea of a called out assembly. That idea was that of a, like a town crier coming into town, assembling the people so they could hear the news. But it's, it became a technical term for the church and a very appropriate one because we too are called out, right? Called out from the world, called out from being a slave to sin to being a slave to Christ. We talked about the nature of the church, the different metaphors that are used in the New Testament. We're a royal priesthood. We're uh, God's flock. We're the body of Christ in the world. We're even called the temple of God because the Spirit of God dwells in us. We talked about how the church is a body that began at Pentecost, not in the Old Testament time. It was not even revealed in the Old Testament, but it began at Pentecost with the coming of the Spirit that Jesus had promised to the, the Twelve. And even then, it took some time for them to recognize that that was the actual birth of the church because initially it was all Jews, or very predominantly Jewish, and over time they recognized that the Gentiles could have embrace the same Messiah and the same gospel and come into the same body and be on absolutely equal footing. And that was quite distinct from the way it was under the Old Testament economy. <clears throat> we looked at the scriptural evidence for the organization of the church. Yes, it is a spiritual body, an organism, if you will, but there was an organization to it as well. They recognized the number of people that joined. They had recognized leaders they had activities that they did on a regular basis. We looked at the ordinances of the church, both baptism and the Lord's table, which we were in God's providence able to celebrate this morning. Last week, we looked at what we call the church and God's program. And what we were doing there was distinguishing the church from Israel, two very different and distinct bodies, but also distinguishing it from the kingdom, that is, the kingdom itself has two different aspects, a universal, uninterrupted reign of God over all things at all times, but there's also a mediatorial kingdom that began at least as early as the, you know, the kings, Saul and David and Solomon in the Old Testament time period. The church is, is not equivalent to the kingdom. Some people would make the case that it is. It is the gateway to the kingdom. We, we become kingdom citizens when we become part of the church, when we embrace Christ as Lord and embrace the gospel. But the kingdom is still to come. It's still future, and it's we'll rule and reign with Christ uh, in the kingdom when he comes. So again, this morning we're going to look at the ministry of the church, and I think that sentence or that phrase will become more clear as we look at it further. David already noted, and I will affirm, that Christ is the high priest for every believer in the church. You know, in the Old Testament economy, there were priests. Israel was a kingdom of priests, but there were also priests within the nation whose function was what? What did the priests do? 
Okay. They were an intermediary between God and man, and how did that flesh itself out as far as their service? They prepared and offered the sacrifices. They had prayers uh, as part of their service. What did the high priest do that none of the other priests did? Okay, he went into the Holy of Holies, and that one time a year, he was allowed to do that. He took in their blood from an animal, and, you know, it was the Day of Atonement. It was a special offering, if you will, for the sins of the entire nation. And in Hebrews 9, there's a contrast between that kind of service by the high priest of Israel with the priesthood of Christ. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 12. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. There's a contrast there, right? Between the tabernacle as the forerunner and ultimately the temple, that earthly high priest, who are of the line of Levi, entered into once a year and the tabernacle that Christ entered into which was where in heaven he entered through the greater more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this creation he's not talking about on this earth he's talking about where God dwells in heaven and not through the blood of goats and calves which is what the earthly high priest offered but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. So again, there's another contrast. And Hebrews, eventually we're going to get to Hebrews, I'm hoping next year, is full of those kind of contrasts between the superiority of Christ and that which has come before. And a big part of the argument of Hebrews, the main part, is you can't go back. Now that Christ has come, you can't go back to that old system. You have to embrace Christ and stay with him. That's what Hebrews is all about. But he is the high priest for us in the church. You know, we have a very different system of worship than Israel did, but we still have Christ as our high priest at the right hand of the Father, always making intercession for us. All church saints constitute a royal priesthood. Again, we talked about how Israel was a priesthood uh, um, among the nations. We also are a priesthood in the present age. And like Andre said, what, what is our role as priests today? Very similar to Israel's. To be, to be an intermediary between God and non-believers. Okay. To kind of try to draw them to Christ. That's right. We're witnesses. We're, we stand between God and unbelievers in the sense of praying for them, seeking their salvation, uh, ministering to them. And all of our life is to be offered as a living sacrifice, not in the same way that animals were in the Old Testament time period, but in service. Let me read both of these scriptures. First Peter 2, 9, we've, we know well, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, again, originally that was all about what Israel was and is still. But the church is that same way. doesn't mean that we're the same thing as Israel, but we have the same kind of characteristics in that sense. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we do that by the way we talk to people, the way we serve people, the way we love people. We represent Christ in the world. Christ is not here in bodily form anymore, 
but his church is his body in the world today. Romans 12.1 says this, and keep in mind where Romans 12.1 comes in the flow of Paul's letter to the Romans. In the first eight chapters, he's laid out the doctrine of salvation that God has provided in Christ. He's talked about uh, the fact that all men are under sin in chapters 1 through 3. He's talked about how we're justified by faith and not by works. He's talked about how we're sanctified not by the law, the way Israel was, but by the Spirit. And he crescendos in Romans 8 with this great doxology for all that God has done and praise for him and all he's done. In 9 through 11, he talks about Israel and really answers the question of, okay, if this salvation is so great and Jesus truly is the Messiah, why hasn't the nation of Israel all embraced him as such? He answers that question, those questions in 9 through 11. And then he gets to therefore in chapter 12. Therefore being in light of all this that I've already laid out for you, what is your response? And in fact, the rest of the letter, 12 through 16, is going to be how we ought to live in light of what God has done for us in Christ. And the, the overarching command for all that is in 12.1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Old Testament sacrifices were holy. They weren't living. They were representations of the fact that sin had to be paid for by the shedding of blood. Our sacrifices are living sacrifices in that our lives are to be lived in service to Christ and uh, service to one another. Living a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. So we don't have uh, just a, a group of leaders that served in ministry in the church. We have leaders. Those are designated by the New Testament. We're going to talk about their roles. But every member is a minister in the church. And that's evident in the distribution of various gifts by the Spirit to various members. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 spells this out. And you remember in, in the letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, in the first letter, he's answering questions that they have written back to him. And the sections, you can tell, are clearly marked off as answering different questions because they begin with, now concerning dot, dot, dot. And in 12 through 14, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And he's answering questions. And they were having some real difficulty with spiritual gifts in the church at Corinth. Here's what he says about the universality of spiritual gifts. Every believer has a spiritual gift given to them by God. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That's what a spiritual gift is. It's really the Spirit working through the totality of the church, both universally and as local bodies. The manifest, manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That is, it is for the good of the whole body, for the edification of others. Spiritual gifts aren't given to us so we can edify ourselves, although some of them will do that. They're given for the edification of others. And then down in verse 18 of chapter 12, now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. God ultimately decides what each member gets by way of a spiritual gift. And just as he's put our physical bodies together in such a way that each member has a particular function and for the health 
of the whole body, every member has to function the way it's supposed to. It's the same way with the local body of believers, the church. Every one of you as a believer has a spiritual gift. And for our church body to have maximum health, to operate maximally efficient, uh, every member needs to be operating in their gift. Now, I don't know. I don't know if you can say this now. I can remember at a point in my life earlier where people were really interested in spiritual gifts and kind of trying to figure out what their spiritual gifts were. You had these lists or inventories. Well, if, if you do this and this and this, you probably have the gift of teaching. Um, to me, it's not nearly as important that you nail down exactly what your gift is. I think it's more important that you serve. And you're going to serve in ways that interest you. And again, that's by God's design and motivation. And I think as you do that in the church, over time, your gifts become evident and other people can see how you're gifted. I mentioned that today is, is our last lesson on uh, ecclesiology. And the next study that we want to do is on spiritual gifts. We're going to use another book to do that. It's called Understanding Spiritual Gifts by Robert Thomas. I'll, I'll send out a link to everybody for this. It'd be really good for you to buy this. You don't have to have it, but it'd be good to read it and as a supplement to what we're doing. Uh, it's basically a, an exposition of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So we'll walk through those chapters together and even give more detail to what spiritual gifts are all about. But again, everyone operating in their giftedness and, and gifts can be a combination. It's not just one. God can put together a person with several different gifts. But my guess is, is as you look at other people, I think a lot of people have a hard time recognizing what their own gift is. I've heard people say that. But as you look at other people, you can recognize what their gifts are. And I think, again, as you serve in different capacities in the church, you can figure out things that you're good at, things that maybe you're not as good at, and you can kind of figure out what your spiritual gifts are. It's not as important to know what the gift is. The important thing is that you serve, and you do that for the edification of others. The dominant theme of ministry in the church is indeed service. Here's what Christ said as he was speaking to his apostles. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. I mean, that's true. It was true in Jesus' day. It's true today. The unbelievers who are in authority largely, maybe not all of them, but most of them, want you to know that they're in authority. And they are very quick to show that they're in authority and quick to tell other people what to do. But here's what Christ says. It's not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you, that is to, to be elevated, shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. We're going to look at some references later that talk about how that's the way we're referred to in the New Testament as believers, as slaves. That's what we are, slaves of Christ. We've been bought with a price by him. And our obligation then is to serve him because in light of what he's done for us. New Testament terminology for believers is the Greek word doulos, which translates as slave. And diakonia is actually ministry. Diakonos would be the word from which we get the word deacon. 
would be a minister. But we'll, let's look at some of these references where this is illustrated. Paul says in Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And these are all the Greek term doulos. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Now you might say, well, those are all apostles, or at least close associates of apostles. What about us? Are we ever called slaves? How about this one? Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated by his angel to his slave, John. So obviously John was a slave of Christ. NES uses the term bondservant, but the important thing to recognize is this is somebody who's fully committed to the will of their master. And John is obviously a slave of Christ, but he's also communicating this revelation to all of us, to all believers of all time, really, as slaves of Christ as well. And then 1 Peter 2.16, Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. <clears throat> what about the term diakonia, ministry? And again, the idea there being one of service. Acts 1.17 uh, is talking about Judas. He said he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. Ministry here in this case being with the 12 apostles who were Jesus' closest followers in his earthly ministry and would go on to be the foundation of the church. Acts 125, to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So this is all in the context of choosing a replacement for Judas in the ministry of apostleship. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry, the akonia, of reconciliation. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 is spelling out the gifted men that God has given to his church. We're going to look at this in more detail. I just want you to see the term ministry right now. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service, the NAS says. It's the same word, the akonia, the work of the ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. And then finally, Colossians 1.25, of this church, Paul says, I was made a diakonos, a minister, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. So as we've already noted, the gifts of the ministry of the members are varied. Uh, and and when I, the, the two passages, the New Testament passages that speak about this most are 1 Corinthians 12, 14, but also Romans 12 has quite a bit to say about spiritual gifts as well. This would come right after the Romans 12, 1 verse that I read earlier. Romans 12, 6 says, And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. He who exhorts, in his exhortation. 
He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Paul's telling us how we're to exercise those gifts, and particularly the attitudes that we're to have as we exercise them. 1 Corinthians 12, 8, For to one is given, and, and both of these passages are listing just some of the spiritual gifts. Um, we'd have to put them all together to get a more complete list. And I'm not sure the New Testament gives us a fully complete list, but both of these passages are giving us a good representative list. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles. Having the ability to do miracles was a spiritual gift. It was something certainly the apostles had, uh, including Paul. Uh, perhaps others had it as well. Those are the ones that we know about the most. But that gift, I would argue, is no longer uh, valid today. And it was it was important back then because they didn't have the full New Testament revelation. It was important to authenticate these as messengers of God, the fact that they could back up what they proclaimed with works, works of power. And we'll look at that in more detail as we go. <clears throat> I'm not saying that God doesn't do miracles today. God can do whatever he wants to, whenever he wants to. That's a big difference, though, between that and saying somebody has the gift of miracles and doing miracles. To another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. So I just want to, this morning, talk about the variety of gifts that are listed that way. We'll go into those more detail in our next study in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. These gifts can be generally grouped as ministries concerning, one, the preaching and teaching of the word. That's a very significant part of what the leaders of the church does do. But it's also something that the members do too, right? Every one of us has somebody else that knows less than what we do about Scripture, our children being prime examples, but others too. And we can help minister the word and grow those people through that. <clears throat> Leadership and administration is another uh, category a general category of spiritual gifts. And then physical and spiritual well-being of the body. Now, if you paid close attention to your notes when they were sent out this morning, you might have noticed that I added the spiritual well-being of the body in a later edition. Uh, physical well-being of the body particularly is something that deacons are tasked with taking care of. And I'd, you know, some of that would involve ministering to, visiting the sick, also, just taking care of property and grounds, helping people, you know, helping facilitate our coming together as a body. But this is a very broad category that I think all of us contribute to, the physical and spiritual well-being of the body. This would include things like the one another commands in the New Testament. And I just want to read these off quickly to you because I think they're not hard to understand. They're usually in very brief verses. Uh, I think it's good for us occasionally, and in, in the day that we do the Lord's Table together is a good reminder of this. Uh, just be reminded of what our responsibilities are to one another. That's the way that the commands are phrased. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. 
12, 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. We've been looking at that a lot lately in Philippians chapter 2. Do not be haughty in mind. That is, don't look down on others, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Edification. Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Ephesians 4.2, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance for one another, to one another, in love. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. <coughs> Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And we don't normally do that in a solo fashion. That's something that we do when we come together each Sunday morning. I love that part of our service. I think we have a very strong singing church. But the, the lyrics and the theology of the songs that we sing are very important and I think very, uh, a very significant part of our worship. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, that is a heading statement that Paul is going to flesh out in the verses that follow as to who is subject to who. Not everybody is subject to, each, to one another. But in each case, there is an authority, and there's somebody subject to that authority. That's how being in subject, subjection works, right? I mean, if you're in the Army, you're, there's not mutual submission. That's a term that you hear sometimes. Uh, there's guys in charge, and there's guys that do what those folks in charge say to do. Well, in the illustration, the examples that follow, be subject to one another in fear of Christ, it's who? Wives to their own husbands, slaves to their masters, children to their parents. And there's responsibility on the authority side that Paul gives them commands of what their obligations and responsibilities are, but there's responsibility on the other party side to subject to that authority, be subject to it, and to obey. Colossians 3.13, bear with one another, forgiving each other for whoever has a complaint against anyone. We're going to have that, right? Everything's not going to always go super smooth. And when we have issues between us, we need to bear with each other, be patient with one another. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That's the motivation. You know, if we're not willing to forgive our brother. God's not willing to forgive us. It's that plain. Therefore, encourage one another. This is 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.13, live in peace with one another. Those are just illustrative examples. There's others in the New Testament, but there's a lot of them. And as we do that, we'll have a spiritually healthy body. Each member is responsible to exercise the gifts that God has given him. We'll give an account for the way that God has gifted us and how we've taken opportunities to minister. 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's what a steward does, right? He is entrusted by his master with his household, his, his wealth, and he's responsible to manage that and to use it in a way that's proper for his master. 
And it's the same with spiritual gifts. We're to use it to build up the house of God, his people. Now, we have to be clear that there were certain gifts that were foundational, as we mentioned earlier, for authenticating God's New Testament messengers, and after some period, no longer existed. I recognize that 1 Corinthians 13 is largely talking about the supremacy of love, and Paul is in the midst of dealing with spiritual gifts in 12 and 14, saying, I show you still a more excellent way. And he launches into the discourse of what Christian love is all about. But in the process of that, he says this, Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but he's talking about when Christ comes back, all those things will be done away. And that's a very popular view of when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And I'm going to defer us until we get there in our study to follow. But I think what Paul is talking about here is there's going to be a point in the maturity of the church in which these gifts are no longer operative. And it closely matches up with after the New Testament canon is completed. Certainly there are gifts that still continue today, but there are some that have ceased because they are no longer needed. Of course, this is a major difference between charismatic theology and everybody else, basically. They would say that these gifts still exist. Uh, and some would say that we still have apostles today, which really doesn't make sense. You, don't, you only lay a foundation for a building once. You don't make another one on the third floor. Uh, and uh, that's what the apostles were. They were the apostles and the prophets were the foundation of the church. All right, when I say the ordered ministries here, I'm talking about in the sense of specifically designated roles of ministry in the New Testament. Here I am talking about the leaders of the church. And we're going to divide these into a general, which is to the church at large, and then local to each local assembly. We read 4.11 already. Let me read it again just to refresh you. It's a really important verse. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. I should say that last one is often joined together. Uh, There's a lot of controversy as to whether it's talking about two different things. And there's a, a rule in Greek grammar that would people would use to support the idea that it should be pastor teachers but that rule as it's spelled out is not completely followed in this in this phrase so <clears throat> i think it's better to say pastors and teachers i would say that all pastors are teachers not all teachers necessarily are pastors and we see that today you know even in a setting like a bible college or seminary you have teachers they're really good, really strong, uh, strong students of the Word of God themselves and really good at communicating it to others. And I, I would argue that even those guys exercise a pastoral ministry of sorts if they're worth their salt. They care about their students, and they want them to be well-equipped for a ministry of the Word. But it's a different role from a pastor in a church. All right, let's look at each one of these individually. Apostles were directly appointed messengers of Christ. They were eyewitnesses of his ministry and resurrection. 
that was when they were getting ready to replace Judas, they had to have somebody that had been with them from the beginning and seen the resurrected Christ. And of course, Paul uh, wasn't part of the 12 in their ministry, but he did see the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. Their teaching formed the foundation of the church. And this is where we're looking at these references that speak about the apostles and the prophets. And when I say prophets here, these are not the Old Testament prophets. These are New Testament prophets that are part of the foundation of the church. We'll look at what they are in just a minute. But let's look at these references. Ephesians 2.19, So then, you, you Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints in our of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. <coughs> so not only are the apostles and prophets the foundation, but it's very important to note that Christ is the head of the corner, the cornerstone, and part of that same foundation. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 3, 4, and by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons, sons of men. We talked about how a mystery is something that has previously been hidden but now being made known as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. He's really talking about the mystery of the church, the mystery of the gospel. Um, it came through the apostles and the prophets. Now we have a permanent record of the apostles' teaching in the scripture, uh, but it, during the New Testament period itself, that record was actually being formed, and they had the apostles and prophets face-to-face, -face, live, as it were, uh, teaching them through the Spirit. 2 Peter 3, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Jude one seventeen. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we have that inscripturated for us in the Bible. It's incredible. The fact that we have the teaching of those who were with Christ uh, preserved for us, readily available for us in this country, especially in our own language. Uh, so it's excellent translations, but preserved all these centuries uh, for our edification. All right, so what about prophets? These were men and women in the New Testament period that spoke directly from God with the purpose of providing edification to the church. A big part of what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 14 is arguing for the supremacy of exercising prophecy in the church over speaking in tongues. He doesn't ultimately forbid speaking in tongues, but it's not the best gift in the church. What tongues did was enable him and others who had the gift to evangelize and to speak in languages that they would not have studied. Supernaturally, they were able to speak in these foreign tongues. If you're going to speak in tongues in the church, you better make sure there's somebody there to interpret. Otherwise, you should just keep silent. Often mentioned with the apostles, their ministry was also foundational and particularly important in the beginning of the church as a foundation. 1 Corinthians 14.3, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. 
evangelists. There's only three New Testament references uh, to with this term. Does anybody recall a famous evangelist who's called an evangelist? Philip. What, do we, what else do we know about this Philip, the evangelist? He was a deacon. He was one of the seven that was chosen in Acts chapter 6. Uh, he was the one that went up into the chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch. <clears throat> but he was known as an evangelist. There are other references. Well, let me just read all three. Acts 21.8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist which was one of the seven. Who was one of the seven? And we stayed with him. Can you think of another place where somebody's commanded to be an evangelist? Timothy. Timothy. Good. Second Timothy 4, 5. Remember, this is Paul's last letter. He's really passing the baton to Timothy. He's already mentored and discipled Timothy, and you could tell there's a very special relationship between Paul and Timothy. Paul knows he's about to be executed, and he's trying to make sure that Timothy is encouraged and willing to carry on the work after he's gone. He says, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship. Paul had certainly been a great, a great example of that. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And then, of course, the other reference is in Ephesians 4.11 itself. The evangelist's role evidently was to proclaim Christ where he was not already named. Much like, well, we still have evangelists today. Billy Graham was a well-known evangelist. Uh, but missionaries, too, we would regard as an evangelist, especially pioneering missionaries, to go to places where Christ is not known and the gospel's not known. Uh, that's, that's the closest association that we have to uh, what evangelist was in the New Testament period. And finally, teachers. Mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and Ephesians 4, 11, they're edified, they edified the congregation by means of their own clear understanding. In other words, they studied the revelation of God and communicated it in a way that people could understand it better and be built up spiritually through that. Their function becomes increasingly important as apostles and prophets begin to pass off the scene. And I would argue that both evangelists and teachers are roles that are still very much part of the church today. Uh, but the apostles and prophets were foundational, and we no longer have those. Now, again, a lot of people in the charismatic movement certainly would say that there are still prophets today. And there are others who say that, and they really have redefined what prophecy is. Some people would say when Paul talks about prophecy ceasing or going away, they're talking about preaching. Well, preaching is a form of prophesying. I will grant that. It's proclaiming the Word of God. But it's not the prophesying that was done in the New Testament period. That's a different gift. And again, it was a necessary gift for divine revelation to be made known before the New Testament canon was closed. All right, so that's the general offices, if you will, or ordered ministries that really were for the church at large and still today. There's also local ordered ministries, and New Testament refers to two offices in the local church. What are they? Elder and deacon. Now, 
there are different terms for elder. We've talked about this in a previous lesson. What are those terms? We've got elder is one. Pastor is another. Bishop. Bishop, elder, or pastor. The study of New Testament usage demonstrates that these are really the same office. It's being looked at from different roles that that one man has and from the fact that an elder is an older man, a mature man who's walked long enough with Christ to be able to lead others in the church. The key function is oversight, caring for, and feeding the flock of God with God's word. And the New Testament does teach a plurality in leadership. I think that's really important. You know, there's many churches out there who don't have that. Um, Well, there'd be some that have only one pastor and some that would have pastor and deacon, some that would have, they wouldn't call them elders, but they would have multiple pastors, a senior pastor and associate pastors that I think are largely functioning like elders. But what, what's the downside of having one pastor and nobody else? Easy to get off track. Easy to, get off track, easy to exercise your authority like the Gentiles exercise theirs and have somebody that's very authoritative and not having any check on what he says or does. Say again. Easily discouraged would be another. There's strength in numbers in the sense of encouraging one another, comforting one another. But I think it's clear as you look at the New Testament model, what did Paul do and what did he send Titus and Timothy to do? They appointed elders in every city, and I think that's meaning multiple elders at each congregation. The elders in Ephesus came and met Paul at a certain point. Plurality is important. Deacon, we've talked about the key function, again, is service, meeting not only the physical needs of members of the body, but physical needs like maintenance of the church grounds. Again, somebody has to do this, uh, and it's important that it be done. And that was more, that is more the focus. Now, deacons, too, are to minister the word as well. They're to have their own uh, houses in order, as it were. Their family is their testing ground as well. And they're to be able to minister the word. But the, the ability to teach, especially, is noted in the qualifications for an elder and not in, in deacons. <clears throat> I want to read through those qualifications again. I know we've looked at these before, but I think it's important to keep these in front of us. 1 Timothy 3, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of episkopos, it's where we get the English word bishop, overseer, one who oversees the flock. It's fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. That's the overarching qualification. doesn't mean sinless. And certainly he's going to be reproached by people for one reason or another. Uh, But he shouldn't have anything that has legitimate grounds or charge that can really stick because he's not, you know, doing something he shouldn't be doing. And then the rest of the qualifications spell out what above reproach looks like. Husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, 
hospitable. Those are character traits. Able to teach. That's a, that's a qualification for being an elder. That same idea of being able to study and understand better for yourself first and apply it to yourself first and then be able to communicate it clearly to others. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, that is, not wanting to settle things with his fist, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. What's the proving ground for such a person? He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Man does not know how to manage his own household. How will he take care of the church of God? That's a logical expectation, right? Logical qualification. If a guy's standing up in front of the church and trying to lead and set an example for others to follow and his own children are undercutting that example, it, it makes it hard to listen to him, hard to follow him. He's not to be a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. You think of an elder as largely having a ministry within the church, and that's true, but he also should live the same way outside and have a good reputation because of that, that he might not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now he goes on to deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. What does that mean, fond of sordid gain? Okay, getting rich or, quick, or, cheating. Or um, not only riches, but also uh, power and uh, prestige. Okay, it's basically, <clears throat> cheating is a good way to put it. It's doing things that are not proper in order to gain wealth. And, you know, men are often tempted with that one way or the other, and an elder cannot be that way. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, if they are beyond reproach. Now, <clears throat> this next verse, verse 11, there's a term used here that a lot of discussion about whether it's talking about a female deaconess or wives of the deacons or just women in general. Uh, the term that's used there, the Greek term, can be used of either women in general or wives, um, and there is no female term for uh, diakonos. So many people would say that this is uh, an official office at the church, a deaconess. Phoebe is called a, deacon, a, a diakonos in the letter to the Romans. And some people would argue that it's wives, the wives of deacons. Both are, uh, the qualifications certainly would apply to both. It is, and it's not an easy call. Was, was Phoebe the wife of a deacon? Not that we know of. Yeah. Yeah. So, some of the <clears throat> discussion is she's called a minister of the church, mm -hmm. right? And again, does that mean in the general sense and that we are all ministers of the church? We all can be called diakonos or diakonoi, uh, or was it an officially recognized office? You know, if it's, <clears throat> this is the only verse that, if it is an office, it's got one verse devoted to its qualifications. Uh, I, I would probably be more inclined to think wives here, the wives of deacons. But 
I also acknowledge that Phoebe was a deaconess, and she served as a minister in that way in the church. NAS translates it as women must likewise be dignified, not malicious, gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. If you translate it as wives, I think it could apply to both the wives of deacons and elders. Some people will make the case, well, why don't they have something spelled out for elders' wives? Well, he's already talked about elders earlier in the same context, so I think it could be the wives of both. Then he goes back to deacons. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife, good managers of their children, their own households. Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So you can see a lot of the qualifications are the same for elders and deacons. Let me read the other one in Titus 1. And again, Titus was charged by Paul to go and appoint deacons. This reason I left you in in Crete, the island of Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if a man, any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, the way the NAS translates it. Um, the other way that that is understood is having children who are faithful in the sense of being subject to their parents. For me, I think that's the stronger understanding because how do you know the children believe? Uh, obviously, they can make a profession of faith and they can <clears throat> even be functioning as believers, and, and that's good. I'm not arguing against that. But if they later walk away from the faith, it just seems to me that it's a, it's a more easily objective criteria to recognize whether their children are faithful in following their father's leadership. Having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. That's the children not accused, and that's very clear in the Greek text. It's not the elder. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's part of a responsibility of an overseer is to know the Bible, the Word of God, well enough to be able to teach sound doctrine and also be able to refute those who contradict sound doctrine. All right, this is a, a closing exhortation, and this is the reason I have this in here mainly is because I'm going to be teaching guys that are going into the ministry uh, as, we, as I teach this in Croatia in the spring, Lord willing. But it's a, an, an important charge for what the leaders of God's flock are to do. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, that's primary role of a bishop, not under compulsion but voluntarily. Again, because you want to and because you want to because of what Christ has done for you. According to the will of God, not for sort of gain. We see that again. Those other references were from Paul. This one is from Peter. And again, there's, you can see a lot of people out there in the church today, uh, especially not a local church as much, maybe, but televangelists who are very much in it for sort of gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, who's the chief shepherd? 
It's Christ. Christ called himself the good shepherd. And we recognize, even the leaders of churches recognize, that he is the chief shepherd, and we are what are commonly called under-shepherds. We seek to be an example, you know, a bodily example in front of you since you don't see Christ. But we all recognize that Christ is the head of the church. He's the ultimate shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the <clears throat> unfading crown of glory. So next time again, we'll start our study on understanding spiritual gifts. Uh, I would encourage you between now and next Sunday to read through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and get this book if you can. Uh, it should be readily available on Amazon, even used copies. <clears throat> it's been out for a while. And uh, we'll begin our study on that next week. <coughs> Any questions before we close? All right, we've had a good time together this morning. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, again, it has been good to be here, to be with your people, to hear from your word, to be encouraged, to be encouragement to one another. Help us in these commands that we looked at just now, to love one another, uh, to defer to one another, to bear with one another, to forgive one another, all because of how you've forgiven us in Christ. As difficult as any uh, relationship might be, we know that we, uh, we, haven't, we, we, can ex we can exhibit forgiveness, we can exercise forgiveness towards somebody else because of the tremendous forgiveness that you've granted us in Christ and help us not to lose sight of that. I pray that as we go through this week, you would help us to, to honor Christ and to minister, um, certainly as we gather together on Sundays and Wednesdays, but also as we have opportunity to serve others in our communities and the different places that you have us through the week. So strengthen us by your spirit to do that, and uh, we look forward to doing that faithfully until Christ returns. We pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat>